0: Take God's word in your hands and turn to uh, Acts chapter 19. We're in a series that we've entitled Unstoppable, looking at the second half of the book of Acts. Last year, we did the first half of the book of Acts under the heading Unfinished, and we've been uh, looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as the good news of Jesus Christ is being spread by him and his associates as they preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to the known world. And we've seen in the first two missionary journeys that Paul has seen some great inroads for the gospel of Jesus Christ in different parts of the Roman Empire, and he's now embarking in Acts 19 on his third missionary journey. He'll do four total missionary journeys. The last one will lead him to the city of Rome, uh, where he will become a martyr for the faith, Uh, but before doing so, uh, he gets to share the good news of Jesus Christ in the uh, uh, central uh, capital city, if you will, of Rome, and it will revolutionize the Roman Empire as we know it and of course As the posterity of that empire, we have seen the impact that God has made uh, through the work of so few people who were faithful and willing, uh, in many ways, as we've talked about today, to be all in for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how God blessed that. Well, in Acts 19, uh, we pick up Paul's story after a short vignette uh, on the man Apollos and how he was impacted by the ministry of a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla. And as they shared and taught him how to uh, be even more powerful speaker and proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, we come back to the Apostle Paul, and he has been uh, serving uh, the area of Galatia and Phrygia, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey, and uh, he's been going from city to city, and we find ourselves, and we're going to throw up the map we've been looking at for the last couple weeks, and on this map we find ourselves in the city of Ephesus this week, uh, there on the Aegean Sea, and the city of Ephesus was not some... Uh, Backwards community It was a metropolis of about 300,000 people Uh, It was known to be the place Or the site of the temple of Diana Or Artemis And uh, it was a temple that people would come far and wide to It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world And and with it came all of the temple worship And temple prostitution Which created a city like Corinth and, And other places around there A place of debauchery and depravity And a place that was so needed the gospel of Jesus Christ well the city of Ephesus while it is no longer in existence you can uh, see the city of Ephesus in fact I've got a picture of some of the ruins of the city of Ephesus that you can see go ahead and throw that on the slide there for me There, in fact, is a a theater. That theater of Ephesus was a theater that sat more than 20,000 people. To put that in perspective, uh, that would be the same size as the United Center in Chicago. And people in the ancient world would come and and be a part of uh, plays and different theatrics that would take place. But Ephesus is now, this is about it. These are the ruins of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Uh, But I want you to know that the city of Ephesus and the church at Ephesus had huge impacts and a lasting uh, place in our world and our history. We know that through this ministry of what we're going to read about today, that there would be people that would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They would start a church. That church would be pastored by one of Paul's associates and disciple Timothy. And as a result of that, Paul would write three letters to the Ephesian Christians. He would write the book of Ephesians, and then he would write two letters to his protege Timothy, and those are what we know was 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy. We know Jesus knew about the ministry in uh, Ephesus because in the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus would write letters uh, to the seven churches of Asia Minor and one of the first churches that he speaks about is this very church that would be started by Paul's missionary journey and his gospel work in the city of Ephesus and so uh, the the story of the Ephesian people is a story that's near and dear to us and we need to recognize that even in communities that are lost and in need of a savior God can bring out a remnant that can change the course of not only that community but human life as we know it and that is true In Paul's time and his ministry to the Ephesian Christians, and so we come to Acts chapter 19, and we've got a long passage in front of us. I'm going to try to bring it all around one theme because there's some different episodes that are taking place. But let's turn to God's Word in Ephes— I'm sorry, Acts. I got Ephesians on the mind. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse one, and we're going to read through verse 20, and then we're going to jump right into our our text this morning. Here's what Luke tells us about Paul's time in Ephesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was going to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And as Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." And God was doing some extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims seven sons of a jewish high priest named Skeva were doing this but the evil spirit answered them jesus i know paul i recognize but who are you and the man in whom the was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and op- overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded and this became known to all the residents of ephesus both jews and greeks When fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were believers now, confessing and indulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Just real quick, before I go to a time of prayer, we've got, in essence, three episodes that we're going to talk about this morning. The episode of these disciples who thought that they were followers of God, and in fact were not, and we're going to learn how they come to know Jesus and some of the impact that that is there for us today. Then we're going to see uh, this incident with uh, Paul's miracles that he's doing, and especially the activity of these sons of Sceva, and how they use uh, the, to copycat, if you will, Paul in trying to do what he's doing and they find out that doesn't work and then finally we're going to see The impact of what change lives do when we say goodbye to the former things of life And we turn ourselves and all of who we are to the lordship of jesus christ and to that end uh, Let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump into our message father. God. My prayer is simple this morning I pray that you will show us this morning uh, ourselves in your word and that we would stop and we would take stock into who we are and what we think about and what we do and and how we uh, live our lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would confront us with whatever sin may be keeping us from a right relationship with you. Second, Lord, I pray that you would show us in your word uh, who you are. Lord, I pray that we would see you. We would see uh, the renown of the one true God. That we would worship You through Your Word this morning. And that we would recognize wholeheartedly that You are the prize. You are the great treasure we should be searching after. And finally, Lord, I pray that You would show us our mission in this world. That we would see that this uh, uh, unstoppable work that you are doing in the lives of the people in the book of Acts, especially here in Ephesus this morning, Lord, that we would see that that unstoppable work is still going on in our world today. That that same Spirit that uh, that you uh, baptized people into at the point of salvation, that same Spirit that enabled Paul to do miraculous things, that same Spirit that moved people to let go of the former ways of life, And to follow you wholeheartedly is the same spirit that's alive and well in us today. And alive and well in this church. And because of that, Lord, we too can see the word of God move mightily. We too can see the impact that all the people in our area might know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that they might bow the knee and worship him. Lord, because of that, we praise you. And we ask now you would speak through your word. Speak through me powerfully, Lord, but allow me to move to the back so that you might receive all the glory, honor, and praise as a result. We ask it in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Just a show of hands this morning. How many of you have a fear, some sort of fear, whether it's spiders, whether it's all manner of things, right? And for those that didn't raise your hand, you have the fear of being singled out in church, and I can appreciate that but we all have fears and and i have a fear that i've had since i was a young boy and i've never really been able to fully shake it and it drives me nuts because it is seemingly something that's all in my head and it's the fear of heights for as long as i can remember i have been fearful of being any higher than 6 feet 4 inches okay any time i get above that i get this queasy feeling inside and i feel that uh, whether i'm on ladders I feel that when I'm on a roof of a home. I feel like that when I'm uh, uh, in an airplane, uh, and especially roller coasters, because it just doesn't seem altogether safe to hurl your body upside down and all of that at high rates of speed. And I have missed out on incredible opportunities of enjoyment because of this fear, and yet... I opt out so often. Now, about 20 years ago, I got tired of this and said, I'm a grown man, and and I shouldn't be afraid of these things. And I started forcing myself into situations where I had to face my fear. And for a while, it was ugly. In fact, one time I was on a roof and uh, working with some guys here at the church, and I I, I froze. I Couldn't move and they had to it was pathetic. It was absolutely pathetic They had to walk me off the roof speaking sweet Nothing's in my ear to get me thinking about something else and and I'm like, okay, I'm done I'm never gonna do that again and and then I force myself again and again because I want to conquer this fear I want to do everything in my power so that at some point. I'll be able to say I've overcome this fear and I can live in freedom instead Well, I want you to know, while while the fear of heights is something that at times has crippled me, I will tell you that I have even a greater fear, and it has moved me not to stay in that fear, crippled in it, but it has really created my calling as a pastor. And I don't know if I've ever shared this with you before in my 15 years of ministry, but one of my greatest fears, and one of the reasons why I do what I do, is my fear is that there are people within my church and within churches all around who say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, who at the day of judgment will find out they never were a part of the family of God. And that concerns me. And quite frankly, it should concern every one of us. Because at the end of the day, if we're in church today, there's some part of us that says, I want to know without a shadow of a doubt that when I stand before God, I will not stand in fear and trepidation, but I will stand in confidence knowing that my God is going to usher me into His kingdom, into His glory for all of eternity. And yet I've come to recognize in our world that, especially here in America, there is a culture that seemingly says that we can say we are in Christ, we are followers of His, we are Christians, when in all reality we are not. A recent study was done that totally explains this for us. Uh, The study was done asking the question, are you a follower of the teachings and a follower of Jesus Christ? In a nutshell, are you a Christian? 43% of Americans said yes to that statement, 43%. Now that's quite an amazing number because if 43% of any of us as Americans agreed on anything, our America would be a very, very different place, right? And yet, there are 43% of Americans in this study all over that are saying, I affirm this and yet as a pastor, I've got to ask the question, is it really true? Are we really, though we say with our mouth that we are followers of Jesus Christ, are we truly followers of His? Now I want to be careful this morning because I could preach this message in such a way that I could have everybody doubting whether they're saved or not. That is not my intention. In fact, my intention is, is to bring great confidence and assurance to those who are truly in Christ, which I'm going to believe the vast majority of you are, based on what I've seen and, and what I've been a part of in your life, and seeing the work of Almighty God moving through you, that I'm going to believe that many of you, I want to give you confidence and assurance that you're in the faith. And the Bible tells us that there's nothing, listen, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we need to hold that, and we need to believe that. In fact, our statement of faith here at Village Bible Church shares that, and it talks about this with regards to the word perseverance, that we as followers of Jesus Christ will endure to the end, and that is a promise to all true believers. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and been sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but will persevere to the very end of their earthly lives. It goes on, and this is important you hear this, believers may, we will, we shouldn't even say may, we will fall into sin through neglect and temptation, thereby grieving the Spirit, bringing reproach to the cause of Christ, and even coming under the Lord's discipline. Nevertheless, God's promise is sure that if God has begun a good work of salvation in you, He is faithful to see it to completion. And we can believe that, and we can affirm that, and we can hold tight as that being the anchor for our soul. But there's a modifier in that statement that is so important for us. That is a promise that true believers can affirm. And so the question this morning is, are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? Because I'll tell you something. What a travesty it will be that you invested all your time and energy going through religious activity and being a part of this church and sitting under biblical teaching and being a part of a group of people that love Jesus only to get to heaven and find out that you were never in the family of God to begin with. What a heartbreaking place that will be. And that is a great fear of mine as a pastor that I wouldn't be willing, and I wouldn't be uh, bold enough to stop and ask you the question this morning, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Even if that means I, in that confrontation, I offend you a little bit, because I'd rather offend you now than you offend God at the, seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And so I want to be just honest and bold because I'm reading a passage this morning where a group of 12 men in Ephesus thought they were saved, figured they had it all figured out, only to find out through one question of Paul that they didn't have salvation in the first place. Now you say, well, why would you do this, Tim? Well, the Bible does it. In fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 that there will be many, not few, not some, not a couple, but many on that day, what day? The day of judgment, who will stand before Him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? All of these religious and spiritual resumes will come flowing out of their mouth. And what will Jesus say? Depart from me, I never knew you. And it seems as if, that Jesus says it will come as a shock to people that they weren't in. Now, why would that happen? Because the human heart is really good at deceiving itself. And we can deceive ourselves, we can deceive others, but we can't deceive God. God knows the heart and the inclinations and thoughts of the heart. And He will be the great and honest, and He will be the great judge who will judge the living and the dead on that day. And I, as a pastor, am compelled to stop as we are doing wonderful things for the Lord to make sure, and to use the phrase we've been using all day, that all of us are all in meaning we're all in the family of God and you shouldn't leave this place without doing some work to make sure of it so notice in the text Paul is spending some time in Ephesus we know that he had been in Ephesus before in Acts chapter 18 we are told that he had been in Ephesus that there had been some uh, initial a uh, positive feedback to the preaching and proclamation of the gospel that some said hey Paul stay with us and we learned in Acts 18 he's on his way to um, Jerusalem to fulfill a commitment that he had made to God and he says if the Lord wills I'll return and so one thing you can walk away from it was God's will that Paul made it back to Ephesus because we find him there and as he does it says as he's in Ephesus he finds some disciples disciples in the uh, Greek language literally means learners these are students these are learners of Uh, Somebody they're pupils of somebody we're going to learn later that they're pupils of John the Baptist And it seems as if in the initial interaction That Paul has fellowship with these guys and is enjoying Christian fellowship with them But something causes Paul to stop in his tracks and say well well, wait a minute. I thought we were all on the same page I thought that we were in agreement on some things, but I got to stop and I got to ask you a question because I'm not sure We're talking the same thing here. And it's in this passage that we learn that if we want to alleviate the fear of what our standing will be before God, not only now, but even more importantly on the judgment day, that we need to do some things. And number one, we need to be careful not, first of all, not uh, to assume some things. That is to mistake that our faith is genuine. We need to be careful of that. These 12 men thought that they were right with God, and they're going to find out they weren't. They're going to find out, and we don't know how they find out. In fact, I want to give you three things that Paul may have seen, and they will work as a wonderful self-assessment for each of us. But maybe the first thing that we might learn about from this is that Paul saw something wrong in their doctrine. In their doctrine. That is their beliefs, okay? Maybe in their dialogue. As they were talking, as they were interacting with one another, one of these 12 men, these disciples of John, said that they believed something about God or Jesus that was patently false. And Paul says, well, wait a minute. A true believer of Jesus, a true believer of God, a true student of the Word of God would not believe such a thing about him. And in fact, that belief forfeits you from the ability to be called a follower of Jesus Christ. uh, Peter, in his second letter to the church in 2 Peter chapter 2, calls these doctrines damnable heresies. That is, beliefs that in essence will send you to hell. Okay? And what these Heresies are are beliefs that are so foundational to the um, gospel of Jesus Christ that if you don't believe in them you start eroding the gospel in such a way that it's no longer the gospel at all and We need to be careful because some of these doctrines are around I want you to recognize our belief as Christians because Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me that that scripture in John 14:6 tells us that every other worldwide faith is so defective that it cannot bring someone in a right relationship with God does that make sense that means we got to do something about it And what we've got to do is we've got to send missionaries, whether from our church or partnered with this church, we need to go out to all of the world and be God's witnesses, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, because there's a whole lot of people who have bought into the defective religions of the world. And I say that with all due respect, but they are defective because they are keeping people from a right relationship with God. It's defective. It's destructive. And it will one day damn someone to an eternity apart from God. But I want you to know that this is a part of the Christian religion as well. And it isn't just so that we get into the tent of Christianity, then we're okay. No, there are groups that have beliefs about God and Jesus Christ and the Scriptures that are so off, if you will, that they will keep people out of the kingdom of God. I'm going to name a couple of them for you. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, our beliefs or, or uh, groups of people that have beliefs, some of them very, very similar to us. But they have certain beliefs, and I will say of all of those three that I've just mentioned, have such warped teachings about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that the church as a whole has said, they are not with us. We use the phrase cult as a word there. And again, I don't do so to, to, to malign them and, and beat them up in an un, unkind way. But if their doctrine is keeping people from the kingdom of God, then we've got to call it out for what it is. In fact, the New Testament called those types of teachings false teachings. And so we need to recognize that there are beliefs that will forfeit us from our relation, a right relationship with God. It could have been doctrine that Paul saw. We don't know. How about number two? Maybe it was their demeanor. Their demeanor. Maybe they were doing something that was altogether not very Christian. Have you ever hung around a person or maybe you are the person where you have talked in one moment of your conversation with someone about how Jesus is changing you and doing all these wonderful things only to have a situation happen where right before your eyes that individual does something altogether unchristian? And you're like, oh, wait a minute! And you have this whiplash. Wait a minute! You were just talking about Jesus in one word, and then you just curse that person uh, to total disaster in their life in a very, very unChristian way. And now I've got this kind of struggle. Which which evidence do I hold to? The evidence that you are a true child of God, or the evidence that you just blew it in an ugly, ugly way? And and in that moment, as an observer, you're like, wait a minute. Are they a child of God or aren't they? Which evidence am I to use to prove one or the other is true? Maybe Paul finds himself there where he's watching them and interacting with them and they do something that is altogether seemingly um, sinful. Now, that, does that mean that Christians, we don't sin? No, but here's the thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. In that moment, does that person who maybe falls to a sin, do they stop and say, whoa, I was out of line? Oh my goodness will you forgive me let me just take a moment I need to ask my God for forgiveness or is this just kind of I can do whatever I want when I want how I want and I'm gonna teeter back and forth in this and we need to be very very careful with this does our demeanor listen very carefully does our demeanor announce to the world that we're followers of Jesus Christ or does the demeanor say we're just in the world like everyone else now you say well, does Jesus really require that our demeanor be different, our activity of life? Yes, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my teachings, my commands. And so, when a child of God doesn't obey the commands of God, it should bring them to a place of great conviction. And conviction should move you to action. To ask for, uh, to seek repentance and to ask for forgiveness. But if you're a person today that says and has on your little pin that you're a Christian and your life doesn't look like it I, I want you to know you should feel altogether Uneasy right now about your eternal place in the family of God and I'm I feel okay in saying that not because I think you're not saved, because the Bible says if you're not following the commands of God something is inherently wrong And when you aren't following the commands of God are you doing the things that a Christian does to get right with God? so I had a A person come up and they were visibly uh, agitated meaning they were sad after the message and I uh, the second sermon I get to correct these things that I do wrong in the first service and so I'm glad you're here this morning and yet what 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 the young lady said was is wait a minute but don't we all sin I said yeah yeah we all sin and I likened it to this as a husband and wife it is my desire to, to please my wife and to honor my wife and to love her. Will I always do that? I know it's hard for you to believe, but I don't always do that. Okay? And by the way, she doesn't always do it for me, so we're equal in that. Now, I've got a response. When I wrong Amanda, my response can be, who cares? Or my response can be, I'm sorry, Amanda. I'm going to figure out, and I'm going to ask you, number one, to forgive me, and number two, I'm going to try to figure out how I don't do this in the future. If you are the former, that is, that you sin, and you're like, who cares? I've got this fire insurance that Jesus gave me. I want you to know there's a good chance that fire insurance isn't going to take care of you because you may say that you're in love with somebody, but you're really not because the truth of that love is is not in you, okay? Or you're a person who is flawed and broken and as our doctrinal statement says, you're going to sin, but that you want to seek forgiveness and you want to seek right when that happens and you don't desire to do it again and again and again, that's the difference. We're all going to sin. It's our response to that sin. And so it could have been their demeanor. Finally, it could have been their dedication. And that is they were just lackluster people. They spoke that they loved God and they wanted to follow God. They spoke about the teachings of John and and all of that. And maybe what it is is that uh, they spoke with a bigger mouth than what their feet and their hands were doing in practice. And some of us do that where we find ourselves uh, being more dedicated in our profession than in actual obedience. Now, I want you to notice something in the text that is so very important. The text tells us that they did believe. And so right away that throws us off, because in our vernacular, belief means salvation. That if we believe in God, we can be saved. But I want you to recognize that the Bible uses this word belief in a broad sense of the word, in the term In fact, in the book of James, we are told that the demons believe. And I want you to know, demons believe a lot of good things about God. The demons know that they were created by God. The demons know that God is an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. The the demons know the glory of God. Why? Because they experienced that glory before falling from heaven. They know God is a powerful God. They know in the end, God wins. Will we see uh, demons in the presence of Almighty God for eternity a part of the family of God? The answer is no. So how can one believe and not be a part of the family of God? Because not all belief is equal. And so some of you maybe this morning are sitting there with a handful of belief and saying, well, I believe, and so therefore I'm in. I want you to know the demons could say the same thing, and they would be wrong just as you are. And so this should grip our hearts and cause us to take a step back and ask the question, am I truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, we need to be careful of some counterfeits. Notice some counterfeits, and I'm going to use these counterfeits that come right out of the text, that there are some counterfeits, because what we do is instead of looking to the Scriptures, we make up our own requirements. I'm going to confess something to you. When my family plays Monopoly, and it was true in my family growing up, and it's true of my family today, that we make up rules as we go along. Who does that when they play Monopoly? Amen? Right? We come up with all these rules and all these new things because uh, we don't read the instructions. In fact, I don't know about your Monopoly game. I can't find the instructions to the Monopoly game at our house. And so we make up rules as we go. It's one thing to make up rules to a dumb board game. It's altogether another thing to make up rules with regards to your faith. But that's what we do. We create this litmus test of whether we're in or not based on others, based on our own sets of requirements and rules and regulations, and it never dawns on us to go to the Creator of salvation and ask the question, it doesn't matter what I think gets me saved, it matters what God thinks what salvation is and what it looks like in my life. So how do we create these counterfeits? What are some of them? Number one, I'd like to call the first one a close but no cigar faith. A close but no cigar face so we've got these 12 guys that Paul interacts with in Ephesus and he interacts with them and he finds out that they are students of John the Baptist they're not very good students of John the Baptist and here's why because when Paul says what spirit were you baptized in their answer is what spirit okay that's a bad answer And here's why it's a bad answer. Because if they were truly followers of John's teaching, that number one, John spoke very specifically about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And John said, I baptize you in water, but there is one coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Well, they don't know anything about it. Well that's a problem. Number two, if they were students, maybe they missed that day when John was speaking about that. And maybe they missed it. Well, all of the Old Testament He talks about the Spirit of Almighty God moving in the hearts of people. That the Spirit of God would take the stony hearts of men and He would replace them with fleshy hearts that would move them to act in ways they never did before. He talks about the Spirit from Genesis to Malachi. The Spirit of God is alive and well in the Scriptures. And these guys are like, we've never heard of such a thing. Which tells me that these men weren't really the students that they played off that they were. But they had enough information to make themselves dangerous. Enough information, enough belief to make others think that it was plausible that they were truly followers of God. I want you to know, be very, very careful of this counterfeit, because this counterfeit, you can explain some of the reasons why you think you've bought into it. And there's just enough there. And these guys were lost because we know anyone who comes and trusts Christ as their Savior is filled with the Holy Spirit. And we learn these guys don't know about Jesus. They don't know about the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, they are unaware of the gospel message. And as a result, they are lost even though they didn't feel like it. Nowhere in this text prior to the gospel being proclaimed does it ever say that they felt they needed to hear more about the gospel. And this makes him, by the way, very, very different than the uh, man Apollos. Uh, Scholars are very clear to say these guys are completely on other ends of the spectrum with regards to Apollos. Apollos was a man who knew the Scriptures, who studied the Scriptures, but who wasn't aware of some of the current activities of the Spirit, the church, the Gentiles' inclusion into uh, the family of God. This is very, very different than not knowing that the Spirit of God was going to change people and make them more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And so be careful that you aren't close but still are out. Number two, be careful of a cultural faith. We move on to uh, verses 8 through 10, and we see that he enters the synagogue as he always does. And as he enters, he speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But these Jews, again, are stubborn, and they continue in disbelief. They speak against the way of Christianity before the congregation, and Paul gets up and he leaves. And he takes the 12 disciples that he had in Ephesus, and they go and they set up shop in the hall of Tyrannus. And it's here that you're like, wait a minute. These are God-fearing people. These are Jews that know the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. These are Jews that find themselves in the synagogues on the Sabbath day going about worshiping God and serving God and going through all of the motions that religious people do. And Paul comes and he preaches Christ and the response is, get that garbage out of here. How can God-fearing people hate Jesus so much? I want you to know this morning. That churches all across our country, and in fact all over the world, will have tons of people enter into it. Not because they want a relationship with Jesus that changes them from the inside out, and moves in them each and every day, but they are there so they can just cross it off the list. And the reason why they do it is their mom and dad did it, their grandparents did it, that's what their nationality does, and these are these cultural faiths that sit there and say, yeah, I do it out of obligation. And it's a part of tradition that I do such things. But you go and you preach to these people and you tell them how Jesus is changing. And I hear this. In fact, I heard this from one of our own people at Thanksgiving. That they shared of how God is changing their life. And their very cultural, religious family wanted nothing to do with it. Get that garbage out of there. And this person was a newer believer. And they're like, wouldn't they want to hear about Jesus? Wouldn't they want to know about the Jesus that they say they worship? But when you're a part of cultural Christianity, then it's something you mark off the list. Now, I want to be very, very frank with you that some of you may be here because of cultural pushes. Maybe you're here because your parents want you here. Maybe you're here because your spouse wants you here. Maybe you're here because you know that your mom at some point is going to ask you on Christmas, well, now where are you going to church and, and what are you doing? And you want to make sure you've got that Village Bible Church bulletin that you can show. Yeah, I'm attending church, good church and all of that. And you're not here for anything more than to check it off the list. I'm going to tell you something. That faith is no good in the eyes of God. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your bottom in worship. He wants your heart given to Him, right? Notice the next one. The next one is a copycat faith. Now we get to this crazy story in verse 11. Paul is doing this awesome stuff, and and he's impacting lives. And in the city of Ephesus, where the worship of of foreign and and unknown gods, like uh, the gods of Greek and Roman mythology, is, is huge and God authenticates and validates Paul's ministry by allowing some extraordinary things to take place, and they are some really extraordinary things, right? We've got handkerchiefs that Paul has touched, literally sweat rags of Paul's, right? So, so imagine I've worked myself up into a lather, I wipe myself, and I set it down on the table, and you guys all fight for it so that you can touch it, <laughs> okay? And then that might heal you from a disease, but that's exactly what happens, and it's awesome. What an awesome God who can use the mundane things of 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 a man like Paul and use it to change lives well all of that is to validate what Paul is saying and what Paul is doing so that when Paul spoke people would say I better listen and what happens is is instead of listening the brothers of the Sceva house say we want to do what Paul's doing and probably the primary reason for it is money okay isn't it always money that gets us into trouble usually i mean and so they come and they we want to do this and we can use this to our advantage and so they go all we need to do is go find some people that need to be uh, have demons exercised from them and what we'll do is we'll go and we'll name paul and we'll uh, we'll do what paul does and that's exactly what they do so they go and they find a demon possessed person and they say hey in the name of jesus who paul preaches come out. And the demon says, excuse me, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. And the demon says, not only do I not know you, but I'm offended that you would even try to call me out in such a way. And he beats them to a bloody pulp. They run out of the house naked and people are full of fear. Number one, full of fear that demon powers are powerful. And we need to be so very careful as we interact and and even, and even at times entertain things of the occult. This is not fun and games. We talked about this earlier in our study of Acts. The, the dark powers of Satan and, and the dark magic that, that is all surrounding it. Be very, very careful you don't play with this stuff because it is dangerous stuff. It will wreak havoc into your life. But I want you to see something especially true to the theme we're a part of. And that is that the sons of Skeva copy Paul and in their copycat faith think that if they do what Paul does, then they will get the same outcome. That's very important. They take the form, they copy the form of Paul, thinking that it's the form that does the power. Okay, so they use the words of Paul and they think demons are going to run. Well, they're the ones that find themselves running. Here's what I want us to be careful with. Some of us may find ourselves copying the faith of someone else's thinking that that form will save us. It won't. Teenagers, you cannot copycat your parents and think when you get to heaven, you can kind of work in under their uh, train of their robe, if you will, on their coattails or shirt tails, if you will. You don't create salvation by osmosis being close to someone else. You get it through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so you can't copy someone and think, well, I'm copying them, I'm doing what they do. In fact, Paul tells us that we can imitate him as he does what? As he imitates Christ. So don't just follow someone for the sake of following them, thinking that you're getting some short uh, cut to salvation. You're not. These guys would learn very, very quickly that the power wasn't in imitating someone's form. But it's the power of God working in the hearts of an individual that allows them to do great and extraordinary things through him. Be careful of a copycat faith. And finally, we will see a compartmentalized faith. A compartmentalized faith. We see that in this great example that takes place in in verse 18. As a result of the sons of Sceva being uh, driven away by the demon, people are enthralled by the power that Paul has through the work of the Holy Spirit and They're struck by this idea that I better be right with God and not assume that I'm right with God Because when the going gets tough my faith better get going and the sons of Skeva, their faith fell apart Because there was no faith in the first place and as a result of that people began to get rid of things in their lives the things that were a part of their former way divulging uh, those those things and getting rid of those things that were a part of the the black magic that they were performing and they said if I'm gonna be a follower of Jesus Christ then I can't do the things that I formerly did in my old way of life and so they brought what amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver that's a huge amount of money and these people said if I'm truly a follower of Jesus Christ then I can't keep some of the things in my life that were from my life of sin I got to give it all to Jesus and I've got to uh, unload all of my closet and all of my garbage and I got to give it to Jesus because it is there and only there that I'll experience true salvation but so often what we will do is we will cut be cut to the heart and we will say Jesus I give you my life But quietly and privately, you've got stuff that you've left in the closet. And you've said, but you know, Jesus, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you my Sunday. I'll give you uh, my schedule, but I won't give you my money. I'll give you... my marriage, but I won't give you my kids. I'll give you my job, but I won't give you the following. And we, what we do is we compartmentalize our faith. And we say our faith is good for this, but it's not good for that. Be very, very careful. Salvation involves all of us, not part of us. And so if there's a part of you this morning where you know, and it's only between you and God because we hide things well, that there's stuff that we're leaving behind Well, I want you to know that it may not be salvation at all because He doesn't have all of us. These are counterfeits that will keep you from experiencing real and true salvation in Him. So what do we do? What do we do? There are some lessons that we need to learn from this morning. And we need to uh, understand that we can't miss these things. So notice not to miss these lessons. Lesson number one as I close. Number one, we got to check our faith we've got to check our faith turn in the bibles for a moment to second corinthians second corinthians chapter 13 second corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 if you're in the book of acts just go through the book of romans to your right the book of first corinthians and the book of second corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 you say, Tim, I'm altogether uncomfortable with what you're preaching right now, so give me a Bible verse that will help me to understand that what you're saying isn't just you, but it's the Word of God. Second Corinthians chapter 13, the same Paul who was preaching in Ephesus says the following, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed you fail to meet the test let me put on the screen Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that verse he says test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith don't drift along taking everything for granted give yourselves regular checkups you need first-hand evidence not mere hearsay that Jesus Christ is in you test it out and if you fail the test Do something about it let me just stop there leave that on the screen go back for a second I want to ask you this question what evidence would you give a jury of your peers that you are a bona fide follower of Jesus Christ what evidence not hearsay what evidence would you give to that end number two the second lesson we can't miss is that we need to challenge one another you got to think that the 12 men were altogether uncomfortable when Paul said, wait a minute, I don't think you're saved. And I'm sure in that little small group gathering, there was some trouble there for a moment. I'm sure Paul didn't want to ask the question. I'm sure the guys didn't like hearing it. But after everything was said and done, do you think that the 12 men were excited that Paul had asked the hard question? Yeah, because they came to know Jesus, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that begs the question, as we're a part of worshiping and fellowshipping together, we need to challenge one another. We need to ask one another, are you in the faith? And we don't need to do it in a demoralizing way. We don't need to do it in a judgmental way. We don't need to do it in a harsh way. We need to do it in a loving way. And we need to be ready for it to be done to us. And we need to challenge one another and ask the question, Are you all in? Especially, let me just say, Especially when our doctrine, demeanor, and dedication say otherwise. Otherwise. That's when we have to be honest and we have to speak. And I'd rather offend somebody in the here and now than stand there and watch on the day of judgment that that person in my small group or that person in my church is standing stunned before God that they weren't really in when they thought they were. How much better and how much happier would they be knowing that if I confronted them and were right in it, And so we need to be careful with this, but we need to challenge one another to make sure that each other are in the faith. The Bible says, spur one another on. The other scripture tells us that we are to be like iron sharpening iron. And at times, when iron is sharpening iron, what takes place? Sparks. That's going to happen sometimes. And that's okay. And that's where love is going to help cover some of that harshness that's going to come by us, us asking hard questions. Number three, We need to cut ties with sin. Like these men and women, they got rid of things. Things in their life that they loved. Things in their life that were a part of their pattern of living before coming to know Jesus. Things that were a part of their life that were valuable to them. And I just want to stop and I want to say to us as Christians and as people who profess to be Christians, what things of our former way of life before coming to Christ are we still holding on to? Can I just be honest? Some of us need to get rid of some cell phones because the cell phone is causing us to sin. Others, it's a computer. Still others, it's a relationship that we have. That bad company is corrupting good character and we need to forsake that relationship because we may keep the relationship but we may lose our soul. Some of it is the possessions that we have. Some of it is our Christmas list this year. That we're more concerned about that than we are being and pursuing uh, being a Christian and pursuing Christ's likeness. There are things that we need to get rid of in our lives. And each of us need to stand before God and say, God, what are things that are holding me from a true and vibrant walk with you? And I want to be ready to hand those things over as these people did. As the fire was stoked and these books were burned for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. When we get serious about our faith and we truly believe Him and are changed by Him, when we are filled by the Spirit, one outcome will take place, and I'll close with this, and that is you'll change your world. You will change the world. Notice in the text as I close the following. Back in uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we are told this continued for two years. Paul stays in Ephesus longer than any other place that he would stay in all of his missionary journeys. And it says, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Go back to the map real quick. When he talks about all of the residents of Asia, look at that area. The area of Galatia, all the way in towns, A-Town and T-Town up there. I'm not even going to try to pronounce, okay? All of that area had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, both the Jews and the Greeks. How awesome would it be if we got serious about our walk with God that we might be able to say here in the Fox Valley area or maybe even greater, the state of Illinois, that because of our work in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of Illinois knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. Number two, notice what the text tells us in verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When you and I get serious about our walk with Jesus Christ, and we live like saved people are supposed to live, that the word we proclaim, listen very carefully, the word we proclaim will have an impact in the world around us. And some of the reasons why we don't see the impact today is because we aren't living what we're preaching. And the people who are listening are quite frankly confused. I don't get it. He says one thing and then he does another. He says he goes to church, and then he talks like the rest of us do at the office. He says that we need to run away from sin, and he's watching the same things that we do on TV. And this is confusing. I don't know which person to believe, his mouth or his actions. But when we get serious and start burning those things and cutting ties with those things that are hindering us, you will be amazed. That when I'm in a right standing with God and living in fellowship filled with His Spirit, I'm always blown away at the awesome opportunities God brings. Here's why. God isn't going to give you an opportunity when He knows you're not ready for it. He's not going to give it. Why would he waste that opportunity? God doesn't waste opportunities. So if you're not positioning yourself where you need to be in obedience, God's not going to say, okay, I'm going to take this disobedient one, and I'm going to have him go share the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, I'm not. That's bad advertising. That's a bad marketing strategy. And so many of you are sitting going, I don't see opportunities, I don't see how Could it be that you're not positioned in holiness and right standing with God, and God's like, well, I'm not going to use you on the team until you make sure you're on my team in the first place. And so there's much, much we can learn from this. Do I know that this challenge might confront people? Yeah, it might even offend some. But as a pastor, I am compelled to ask these questions because my greatest fear is that some will sit under this teaching year after year, Sunday after Sunday, thinking that in it there is eternal life. And find out at the end of the day, unless we make it ours, unless we receive by faith through grace alone the salvation that Jesus Christ gives by the blood that was shed by Him for us on the cross of Calvary, if we think we can do it ourselves, if we think we can copy someone into heaven, if we think it can be a part of our culture but not a part of our heart, we will be gravely mistaken on the day of judgment. And I love you too much not to share that good word with you.